Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. Genesis is full of foundational stories like this one about Joseph and his brothers. Joseph is um, the son of Jacob, and he's Jacob's favorite. Justifiably, Joseph's brothers don't like this. They actually sell him into slavery and then tell their dad that he died. Joseph ends up in Egypt where he struggles, but eventually he climbs to the highest ranks in Pharaoh's court. Meanwhile, in Judah, Jacob and his sons are starving because of a famine that's covered the land. Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to beg for help. What does Joseph do? Here's our scripture for today. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? And so they approached Joseph saying, Your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And then his brothers also wept and they fell down before him and they said, here we are as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he assured them, speaking kindly to them. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. morning we continue our 40 days of forgiveness sermon series for the season of Lent. And as we get about to the halfway point, I just want to remind you that the journey for and toward forgiveness 
It's unique and personal for every one of us. It's different for every one of us because every experience and expression of hurt that we go through is unique and personal for each of us. So there's no one way to forgive in the same way that there's more than one way to get hurt. Some people, for example, know a depth of pain in their life that others will never thankfully be able to fathom. While some might experience a slight or a depth of pain that others might consider rather trivial. Some people might associate their pain with a brokenness in a relationship in which somebody did something or said something terrible to them and they will say, how can I ever forgive that person? Whereas for others, it may be an experience that is systemic or generational, uh, existential, where whole groups of people say, how can I ever forgive that person or that group or that nation for what they have done or what they are doing? Ukrainians that are right now fighting for their nation, the Palestinians today who live under occupation, the Jews who walked out of concentration camps, indigenous peoples who lost their lands, uh, whole racial groups, people of color who were, who were taken into slavery. There's different kinds of experiences of, of pain and trauma in our lives. And so forgiveness is complex. It's multifaceted. And in some cases, it may even seem implausible. And so what we do when we talk about forgiveness is we kind of fumble around and we, we search for clues on our hands and knees and we try to put this little puzzle together that can give us some ideas on how to do it uniquely in our own lives. Some of those clues that we've seen so far include uh, our first sermon here on forgiveness was, was resisting the human impulse toward revenge. The second clue, if you recall, was to uh, reveal our shadows so that um, we can be reconciled with our true selves, that we're not living divided lives. Um, We talked uh, last week about remembering essentially that we live daily in this condition of God's forgiveness every day, this experience of having been forgiven and being forgiven every day. And today, we're going to uncover another clue that helps us on our journey toward forgiveness, and that is reframing our past. Whenever we have experienced the hurt caused by others, those wounds, as we know, can be deep and enduring. And it can feel, as we often say, that uh, life will never be the same again. And sadly, for many, that is painfully true. But in every experience of hurt or trauma or personal pain, our future life will turn on this one question, this one question. Can this painful experience that I just went through, can it be transformed into something that may bring about some redemptive or good future for me or for others even? In other words, we have a choice. We have a choice in how we respond to what's been done to us. 
We have a choice in how we will make sense of, how we will frame our past experiences so that we can live a better future and a better story. We have an opportunity to transform our pain into something that can be redemptive down the road. In every experience of pain, there is, I think you know this, there is this raw energy in every experience of pain, raw energy that is waiting to be used. And it asks you, how will you use it? Will you use it to turn inward on yourself? And will that energy uh, consume you through unhealthy behaviors, addictions, isolation, withdrawal, anger, rage, you know all of these, we, we do them. Or we can use that energy and turn it outward and leverage the energy for good. And every experience we know that pain is essentially a, a compelling motivator. It's a catalyst. Years ago, I read the story about a man in Venezuela. He was 33 years old. Carlos Camejo was his name. Uh, he was involved in a very serious car accident. He was uh, transported to the hospital where he was declared dead. And they took him to the morgue and they began to do this autopsy. And uh, as the medical examiners began to make their first incision, uh, it went terribly wrong all of a sudden. Camejo uh, said, ouch. <laughs> That's one way to really ruin a perfectly good autopsy, isn't it? <laughs> Kameo, it turned out, was very much alive. And they interviewed him later and he said, I woke up because the pain was unbearable. Pain is this compelling motivator. It can wake us up. It can call us to our senses. It can inspire us to make some dramatic changes in our lives. It can help us to rise above our circumstances. What did Rocky Balboa say in his final boxing match? I just saw this a week ago. Uh, that says a lot about me, doesn't it? <laughs> Rocky is about 110 years old uh, in that movie, and uh, he's washed up, and he climbs back into the ring one last time, and he says, the world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It'll beat you to your knees. It'll keep you there if you let it, but it ain't how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. That's inspiring, isn't it? Rocky lost that fight, by the way. <laughs> It'll beat you to your knees and keep you there if you let it. Don't we know that's true? It's the truth. Just look at the story of Joseph in today's reading from Genesis. The world beats him pretty hard. It's amazing that he gets back up off the mat and continues to go forward. Joseph Look, let's, let's admit it, Joseph is not a very likable character. If you don't know anything about him, I'll tell you just a little bit. He's one of Jacob's 11 sons, but Scripture says Jacob is the favored of those 11. Joseph knows it, and he uh, reminds his brothers of that every single day, which is uh, not only extremely self-assured, but uh, also annoyingly narcissistic. Joseph keeps having these dreams. Remember this, he's a dreamer. You're going to hear more about this later. And Joseph tells his, uh, his brothers that one day he's going to be kind of a big deal. He tells his brothers, I'm going to conquer the world, and uh, someday you're going to bow down to me and serve me. And oh, by the way, dad likes me best. <laughs> Joseph won't stop bragging about himself. 
And so one day his brothers call a little meeting together and they have to deal with the question, what are we going to do about the Joseph situation? One of the brothers proposes that they kill him and just drop him into a well. Reuben, another brother, suggests that they just throw him into the well and let nature take its course. Judah comes up with an even better plan. Look, he says, Joseph is family after all, we shouldn't kill him. Why don't we sell him into slavery instead, right? I mean, that way he gets to live, we get the money, it's a win-win. So that's what they do. This is a terrible story. Betrayed by his brothers, sold for 20 pieces of silver, essentially left for dead. People ask me all the time, hey, you ever watch that show on uh, Showtime? I think it's called Succession. I'm like, no, I've read the book. It's called Genesis. (laughs) All this family dysfunction. Just check it out sometime if you want to be entertained. Joseph is hauled off to Egypt, and he's sold a second time to Potiphar, this guy named Potiphar, who who has a wife. Potiphar's wife has eyes on Joseph. Joseph won't reciprocate, so Potiphar's wife tells Potiphar that... uh, Joseph just put a hit on me, and Joseph ends up in jail. It's an awful story about the terrible things we do to each other, especially the terrible things we do to those that we love. Joseph isn't the most likable guy, but he doesn't deserve this fate. And anyone here who has endured unnecessary pain, especially at the hands of those that are supposed to love them, can identify with Joseph's plight. Most of us can endure the short-term aches and pains, the emotional stuff that we go through, but there is, for some people, another kind of pain that runs much deeper. And that's the kind of pain that settles in the human heart, the human soul. It's the pain that comes from setback after setback, trauma after trauma. The world will beat you to your knees, and some people know that in very painful ways. Some people know it. What, what do we do with that pain? Well, we can bury it, of course. We can numb it. We can run from it. We can let it consume us. But what if God invites us to begin to treasure that pain to the point where it can become a source of healing and compassion for other people? It's rare. But when we hold on to that pain in such a way that we process it and treasure it, hold it tenderly, we can begin to see how it could be used. Frederick Buechner, I've often quoted him, he's a, a writer and a retired or United, uh, Presbyterian pastor. He's written a lot about the story of his childhood, painful childhood, a lot of trauma. And one day he writes about having the opportunity to go speak at a retreat in Texas uh, once he started really getting his publishing writing career going. And he told the story at this retreat about A night when he was 10 years old and his father came home after having had too much to drink. And the father wanted the keys to the car and the mother wouldn't give the keys to little Frederick or to the father, so she gave them to Frederick who was 10, 10 years old. And the mother said, don't give these keys to your dad. She stuffed them under Frederick's pillow. And the father was searching everywhere, all over the house for these keys and He just knew that Frederick had them, and he he pled at the bed of little Frederick, give me the keys, give me the keys. 
And Buechner says, I, I fell asleep with my father's voice pleading for these keys, hiding under the covers. When Frederick Buechner told that story at this retreat, and somebody came up to him, a man. He approached him and he said something that Buechner says I'll never forget. He said, Mr. Buechner, you, you've had a fair amount of pain in your life, like everybody else. You have been a good steward of it. And that phrase caught Beekner off guard. To be a good steward of your pain. And ever since, Beekner has thought a lot about what it means to, to practice the stewardship of pain. He said, besides being a steward of our pain, there are alternatives. The most tempting, he says, is to forget it, to hide it, to cover it up, to pretend it never happened because it's too unsettling to remember. But what does it mean to be a steward of our pain? Well, perhaps, says Buechner, it's having the courage to see the pain and, and to hold it long enough for it to become a, a treasure, a treasure to the point where it can become a source of compassion and healing, not just for ourselves, but for others. And he says, it's at those moments of pain in our own lives where we are most aware of the pain of others. Isn't that true? And where we are most open to our own deep places in which we are aware of our powerlessness to get through it alone. And where we become aware of God's power to get us through it. Not only through it, but God's power on the other side of it to transform it. To be used for other things that are good in the world. And the word we use for that often in this culture is a wonderful word called resilience. Resilience is the emotional and spiritual capacity, the mental capacity to, to bounce back from adversity and to use the wisdom that we gain and glean from that experience to then adapt to new challenges and trials that come down the road. Resilience is like a muscle. It, it contracts during good times. During hard times, it expands. One of the challenges that we face in our culture today, one of the best, biggest challenges our kids face is is parents who refuse to allow their children to fail. Right up on that list of the dangerous things that our children have to deal with today, social media, bullying, addiction, substance abuse, depression, right up there at the top is the need for greater, for, for, for greater uh, resiliency. To allow our kids to suffer a little so that the next adversity won't hurt so bad. Resilience is like a muscle. We know the only way to develop resilience is through hardship. Through the difficult times. This is why the great philosopher Nietzsche, he said, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. That's why the U.S. Marine Corps uses that mantra, pain is just weakness leading the body. Resiliency, it's the power to hold on during difficult times. And it comes from understanding that, that God doesn't always take us out of our problems, but that God leads us through them. God doesn't always take away the pain, but God gives us the capacity to transform that pain for good purposes. Joseph is exhibit A of resiliency. Back to the story, while he's in jail for uh, refusing Potiphar's wife's advances, Joseph 
gets back to the dream stuff. And he begins to uh, interpret the dreams of his fellow prisoners. And when Pharaoh learns that Joseph has a, a knack for interpreting dreams, Pharaoh sends for Joseph because Pharaoh's having some problematic dreams of his own. Joseph is so good at interpreting Pharaoh's dreams that Pharaoh promotes Joseph essentially to the head of Egypt's Department of Agriculture. And suddenly, think about this, Joseph, the former slave and prisoner, becomes the second most powerful person on the planet. And according to Joseph's interpretations of Pharaoh's dreams, those dreams were predicting that there would be a great famine across the land. So Joseph gets to work. He, for seven straight years, he stores up grain in preparation for the famine. And when the famine finally arrives, it's experienced not only in Egypt, but it's felt all the way over into Canaan, where Joseph's betraying brothers are starting to feel the pinch of that no-carb, no-calorie diet. And when word gets out that Egypt has food, those brothers, send for each, uh, for, uh, uh, those brothers are sent to Egypt to get some. That's when the story comes full circle. This is the best part of the story. After years of slavery, imprisonment, the loss of everything that ever mattered to him, those betraying, half-starved brothers show up at Joseph's doorstep and they don't even know it's him. How could they? They have no idea until Joseph finally reveals himself. What will Joseph do to them? He is a victim, isn't he? But Joseph doesn't see himself as a victim here. When he looks at his own life and the events of his life, he doesn't see a, a, a series of painful tragedies from which he'll never recover. What he sees instead is a, a series of what look like random events. But when you step back and look at it all, you begin to see a pattern emerge. That's how Joseph sees the world in his life. To an ordinary person, these painful experiences would just look senseless and random. But to Joseph, there's a pattern. He begins to see that from that very first day when his brothers sold him into slavery, to all those years working as a slave, to the years in Pharaoh's prison, and now to this very moment when his brothers stand before him, as he stands there as the most, second most powerful man on the planet, when he puts it all together, what he sees is how this painful journey has shaped him into this amazing instrument that God can use. It wasn't that it was all, it wasn't that it was all preordained. It was, it was that these experiences ordained him for this very moment. Joseph could see that he was saved by God so that he could save not only his brothers, but the entire nation of Israel. And he says, even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as God is doing today. God does not cause hardships to happen, but God won't allow us to waste them. God gives us the courage to use them for good purposes. We all have pain, we all have problems, we all have a past we all have some degree of trauma, but those who get off the mat, 
are those who possess a resilience that's born of faith. We see it in the life of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He says, we are oppressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We get knocked down, though we're not destroyed. Resilience. That same Apostle Paul, he faced his own pain. Do you remember what he called it in 2 Corinthians? He called it, quote, a thorn in my side. A lot of scholars have speculated what that thorn might have been, a a physical condition, maybe depression, epilepsy, a disability of some kind. But I've always wondered if it could have been a person. Have you ever referred to somebody as a a thorn in my side? I'm not the only one, am I? Paul tried to run from that thorn, but God said this, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul got up off the mat. Power is made perfect in weakness, something redemptive can come out of brokenness. Even though you intended to do me harm, God intends to use it for good. I recently heard from somebody who uh, is one of our uh, members of our growing online community. She's been worshiping with her family for almost two years now, and she is this extraordinary artist. And she wrote to me about her own experience of trauma in her life as a child and the hard, hard work that she's had to do to, to heal from it. And what she said was, she's learned that from her therapist that, that children who go through these difficult experiences, they're giving, they're giving this, this capacities, these graces and gifts for reading a room, for being hypervigilant, for being sensitive and aware of what's going on. And she said, that's me. But she said also, her therapist told her that, and this is what I believe Joseph tells us, that we don't have to live our futures as victims. That while life after trauma will never be the same again, there is life and meaning and life-giving meaning after trauma. She said, many of us who live through trauma go on to be either therapists or artists. And she said, I'm the artist. Not I'm a victim. I'm an artist. Joseph said it this way, even though you intended to do me harm, God intends to use it for good. Today's takeaways, each of us experience pain in uniquely personal ways. We can choose to be good stewards of our pain. When we become good stewards of our pain, God will use it for higher purposes. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.